Let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for another beautiful day you've given us. Lord, we can't ever take for granted life and breath. We thank you that you've allowed us to be here today, to worship and to encourage and to fellowship and to study your word. And I pray that you would help us set aside all the distractions of this week. Lord, even I know in myself I have so many distractions in my mind. I'm sure other people are in the same boat. So I pray that you would help us to focus on you, to set aside our burdens and concerns, not because they're not real, but because they're secondary to our worship. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength, give us ears to hear, and give us hearts that are desiring to obey. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are continuing our series where we have gotten into the focus on what I believe is one of the crucial studies for the health of our church and for the health of churches in general. And as I articulated last week in more detail, we're talking about husband and wife, but the husband and wife relationship was the very first relationship ordained by God. When it was not good for man to be alone, God created woman. So the marital relationship is foundational to all human relationships, and that's especially the case for Christians, whose marriages are supposed to be a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church in a mysterious way as laid out in Scripture. Now, when we don't follow our God-given roles, we can distort people's views of the church. In fact, I think the biggest damage to the credibility of the church quite often has occurred with what people see as hypocrisy when it comes to marriage. Because the lives of Christians in their mind look just like our lives when it comes to marriage. Ultimately, we can give our kids a wrong view of marriage. We can give our unsafe family. We can do a lot of damage if we don't try with all of our might to fulfill what God's called us to do. And we understand that Satan attacks marriage at a foundational level. If that's the first relationship ordained by God, if Satan can undermine marriage, he can undermine the foundations of humanity, which, of course, is his pattern and practice throughout all of human history. So when I get to chapter 3, and I start to look through First Peter chapter 3, as I reminded you, we're dealing with wives, and then we'll deal with husbands, but this is in the context of a larger discussion of submission. It's a word that is a challenge for us, but Peter has instructed us, not only are we to live holy, but we're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, according to chapter 2. And when we do that, part of how we keep our behavior excellent is by submitting. So we're submitting to the government. We spent quite a bit of time talking about that. We're not supposed to be the rebellious part of citizenry. We're supposed to submit to the government. The only thing that we would refuse is if the government tries to get us to sin. But we should be the best citizens and the most submissive citizens. Likewise, we're supposed to be great employees. We're supposed to submit in the workplace. That's one of the categories of submission. Servants submitting to masters. The analogy today would be us in the workplace being submissive even if our bosses are unreasonable. And as we saw over many weeks, the way that Peter framed all of this is that it is possible, even in the midst of unfair and unjust circumstances, to do this, because he put Christ as the example. 
Jesus was subjected to brutal and unfair accusations, unfair punishment, even an unfair execution. And yet through it all, he responded sinlessly. He didn't respond with sin in his actions, nor did he respond with sin in his words. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats. He just kept entrusting himself to God the Father. So as we get to chapter 3, there's a context of all of this. This overall view of submission, but also the context of Jesus Christ and his example. So follow along. I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 3 again. This is the whole section dealing with wives. And I'm going to get a little bit farther today, but not that much farther. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word... They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. As we go through this broader section, and today we're going to get farther into verse 1, we're not even going to get to verse 2, we're looking at the marks of a godly wife. There's a lot here, I don't even know now in the course of my studies, how many various marks there will be, but there are multiple marks of a godly wife that we can discern from Peter's teaching. And last week, I covered that very first mark, which is this, the mark of a godly wife, she is willing to trust the Lord. She is willing to trust the Lord. And it comes back to those words translated in English in the same way. In the same way. There's a context, of course, that like we're called to submit to the government and like we're called to submit to our employers, there's a sense in which we're called in the same way to submit wives are to their husbands. But as I alluded to and described in more detail, it's also a significant thing. It's in the same way that Christ responded. Christ is the example. It's hard to fathom that the God-man Submitted, but he did. He didn't do what we might have done and take everything into his own hands, and he would have been justified in doing it. He kept entrusting himself to God. And as Peter said, Jesus is an example for us to follow in his footsteps. That applies to wives. If things are unfair and unjust in your marriage, Jesus is the example, wives. Because Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. He did not sin. That's lesson one, wives, don't sin. He didn't respond verbally in out attacks and anger. Don't do that, ladies. But even in the midst of injustice and abuse and mistreatment, what Jesus kept doing was entrusting himself to God. In the same way, wives, you do that. In fact, if you don't have the ability to trust God, then everything else I'll say is really secondary. Because it means your relationship with God isn't right, and then your relationship with your husband is necessarily going to be a casualty. So it's crucial. Just 
as Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father, wives, you need to trust the Lord. So the first mark of a godly wife, she is willing to trust the Lord, and now we get to the new material. It's the second mark of a godly wife. She is willing to submit to her husband. She is willing to submit to her husband. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. This is really a relatively straightforward command. I'm going to explain some more about it today. I'm going to explain what this looks like in future teaching. But before I even get into the details, I want to quickly point out how consistent this theme is in Scripture. As I mentioned, I believe, last week, I Pastor Steve recently taught on the roles of husband and wife from Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24, it says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. In Colossians 3.18, we Read this, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, Kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This idea of submission, subjection, is not an isolated thing. Peter is not speaking in some obscure, unheard of manner. He's not cutting out a new area and teaching something that's radically different than the rest of the New Testament. Why do I even bother to mention that? Because what we see often when we're dealing with a particular position of Scripture that is contrary to the culture around us, and this certainly is that, what we often hear was, well, that's just an isolated verse. Or, well, that's just one part. Well, it's not. This is the view of the New Testament. Not only that, as we're going to see later, this was the standard in the Old Testament. As Peter points back... To Sarah and other women from a different era. This teaching on wifely submission is consistent with the picture of the rest of the New Testament and of the Old Testament. So now let's begin to pull apart the actual words. In the same way, you wives. Now the context here seems very clear. Peter is talking to Christian women. These are women who have heard the gospel and have come to faith. This isn't a general discourse to women in general out in the world. Peter is talking to women in the church. Now what he's stating is God's ideal in general, but this is direction to Christian women. So if you know Jesus Christ, ladies, and you're a wife, this applies to you. 
And the command is straightforward. Be submissive to your own husbands. The word translated submissive here is the same root word used in 1 Peter 2.13, talking about submitting to the government. And it's the same root word used in 1 Peter 2.18, talking about slaves submitting to their masters. And as I covered when I taught about this word before, the idea here is of voluntarily submitting yourself, placing yourself under someone else's authority. This is not a case where someone comes with a gun or a stick and beats you into submission. That should never be the case, Christian women. No, this is a situation where before the Lord, you decide this is how I'm going to live. I'm going to willingly and voluntarily relinquish my right to dictate my terms and I'm going to submit. That's what Christian wives are being called to do. And I do want to be specific and very clear to look at how that's phrased to your own husbands. It's a very important point. Now, there are contexts where all of us have to submit to other people, but in the context of this command, it's your own husbands. I'll make it personal to me. My wife, Debbie, is married to me. I'm her husband. I'm the only husband she has to submit to. Not some other man. This isn't a general command that says all women should submit to all men. No, this is to Christian wives saying, look, if you're married to your husband, voluntarily place yourself under his authority. This is a command to submit to your husband and to your husband alone. This term is comprehensive. This submission concept, and it includes every area of your life with only one exception. In every circumstance where we're called to submit, there's always an exception. The quickest summary of that exception is found in Acts 5.29. It's a good phraseology. Peter and the apostles were being commanded to do something contrary to what God's word said what they had been directed by God to do, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So, if your husband asked you to sin against God, then you would respectfully refuse. I use an illustration that I heard years ago, I don't know where I heard it, but it certainly is practical at this time of year, if your husband prepared a false tax return knowingly was lying to the government and said, will you sign this because we're married finally jointly, then you would have to lovingly and respectfully refuse. You can't engage in crimes against the government. You can't engage in fraud if you're a believer. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You can't help your husband evade lawful responsibilities to pay taxes. But absent your husband telling you to sin in a clear-cut way where you could look and see Scripture... You're supposed to submit. And I'm going to talk about what some overall character traits of submissiveness look like later. But again, I want to emphasize how comprehensive this command is. And you have to think 
wives very carefully about your views of submission. Because this command has implications for your home environment. It has implications for how you raise your children or how you relate to your children. It has implications for how you spend your money. It has implications for where you will live. It has implications for where you'll vacation. It has implications for everything. Now, I do want to be very clear because it's always important. I don't know if you guys remember. I was living in California at the time. It probably was back in the 90s, I'm guessing, The Southern Baptist Church passed a resolution at one of their annual conventions about wives submitting to husband. You could imagine the outcry and the hullabaloo. Why? Because they say, you're just saying that women are inferior. Barefoot in the kitchen, that's where you want your women. Well, that's foolishness. That's certainly not God's view of women. The command to submit has nothing to do with inferiority. Men and women in the sight of God have equal worth and dignity. Both men and women were created in the image of God. In fact, part of what was revolutionary about Christianity, and I'm going to explain some of that in just a moment, what was revolutionary even in this command, but what was revolutionary about Christianity was the recognition of the dignity and worth of a woman. Jesus didn't treat women like second-class citizens. He cared for them. He ministered to them. He forgave their sins. He allowed women to minister to Him. Anyone who thinks that what I'm talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3 has anything to do with the fact that women are inferior or of less worth than men is mistaken. The Apostle Paul, in a section of Scripture that's often distorted and not accurately interpreted, made a statement that I think puts things in context of, if you've come to faith in Christ, where do you stand? Beginning at verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 26 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So whatever you're being commanded to do, ladies, by the Lord in submitting to your own husbands, it doesn't have to do because God thinks you're second-class citizens. The fact that Christ died for your sins proves otherwise. It doesn't have to do because you're unworthy. It's not because you're not capable. It's not because your husband is smarter or better. Rather, God has created order in His universe. There's a lot of submission. God the Son submitted to God the Father when He was walking on the earth. The church submits to Christ. The members of the church submit to the elders. Again, every one of us is required to submit to the government. We're all required to submit to our employers. 
Submission is just part of the created order, and one part of God's created order is that wives submit to their own husbands. Now, as I alluded to last week, if your husband is loving and kind and humble and selfless, submission really doesn't sound so bad. It's not really hard to submit to someone when you know they love you and have your best interest at heart. Well, let me rephrase that. It still is hard because we're selfish still. But it certainly sounds better on paper. If you know that the person that you're submitting to has your best interest always at the forefront of their mind and they're always looking out for your interest above their own, then all of this sounds relatively palatable. But that wasn't the situation that Peter was giving this directive to. As you'll see in a moment, these were primarily women whose husbands were unbelievers. And their lives were not easy. Their husbands were not princes. The point is, there isn't a separate standard based on the type of husband you have. Well, you submit if your husband is a good, godly man. You don't submit if you've got a lemon. No, it doesn't matter what kind of husband you have. God calls you to live a certain way and it's to submit. So it's going to lead to our third mark of a godly wife. The first mark is that she's willing to trust the Lord. The second mark is that she's willing to submit to her husband. The third mark is this. She cares about her husband's soul. She cares about her husband's soul. Peter says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Peter was dressing something that was a very common reality to his original audience. And he's saying, you submit... Even if your husbands are disobedient to the word. There's a so that. There's an explanation. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. What does he mean here? He's not talking about the normal reality of life. Which is that even if you're married to a Christian man, he sins against you. I've been married to Debbie, I think it's 26 years. I think I'm better than I was 26 years ago. I know I am because I wasn't a believer then. But she still has a husband who sins from time to time. That's not really what Peter is saying here. Certainly it has applicability. Debbie has to submit. But what Peter is talking about is a circumstance where they're disobedient to the word. And the way he uses the phraseology, the word, is talking about the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't talking about a particular part of scripture where it says, husbands love your wives, well he didn't love me. No, this is talking about someone who rejects the message of the gospel. And here really is the picture. The picture at that time is that there were many men and women who heard the gospel together. Wives heard the gospel, and their husbands heard the gospel. The wives came to faith, the husbands did not. There are people at Lakeside in that exact same situation. 
Peter is dealing with that circumstance. And you have a situation here where some wives heard and believed and Peter's talking to them because their husbands heard the exact same message and said, I don't want any part of it. Rather than turning to Christ like their wives did, these husbands continue on their merry way in sin and rebellion. But if we dig a little deeper into the culture at the time, things were probably even worse than just passive unbelief. Well, you go to church, I'm fine. There were not many people at this time who were truly atheistic, meaning they had no concept of God. There was a lot of worship of pagan gods. It permeated the culture. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is written to counteract all the various perversions that were going on in society. And at the time of the writing of this letter, if the experts are to be believed and there's no reason to doubt them, wives were really more like property than human beings. And so if a husband picked a religion, guess what? The wife had to go along. That was the rule. So if the husband embraced some type of pagan religious worship, everybody understood the wife was obliged to follow. And Christianity was upsetting the apple cart. There's actually a longer reference and some of the experts would suggest that the reason Peter only addresses one verse to husbands but six verses to wives is not because the wives need more instruction. It's because if the husband came to faith, he didn't face persecution really. Like a wife would. If the husband came to faith, he was in charge of his family. The wife didn't have a choice. She had to go along with it. Whereas a wife was really in a bind. The husband had absolute rights. So when a wife embraced the gospel, it was a complete repudiation of her husband publicly when she repudiates his religion. It was apparently not uncommon for husbands in those cases to be resentful and angry with their wives for the humiliation and the embarrassment and to make their lives miserable. So it is likely that in most such circumstances the husband was anything but kind and understanding towards the wife who embraced the gospel. It's far more likely that the husband was mean and offended and vindictive and abusive. His wife had embarrassed him. She had rejected his authority in his mind by following this Jesus. Now it may seem like I've gotten a little away from the point here, but I didn't. This is actually ultimately leading to the exact point. Because in this circumstance, with an offended, angry, vindictive husband, that we see a godly wife's concern for his soul. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. They may be one. This is talking about salvation. A petty wife may be angry at her husband who resents her faith, who makes her life difficult. How dare he abuse me? How dare he mock me? 
How dare he make my life difficult? I'm glad there's a hell for sinners and I can't wait for him to get there. After the last umpteen years of my life, he deserves it. But that's a wicked, ungodly attitude for a Christian wife. It's a far cry from Jesus as he was being abused and killed saying, Father, forgive them. And remember, Jesus is the example. A godly wife wants her unbelieving husband one. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-22, the Apostle Paul uses this terminology. And the idea is not negating God's work in salvation. Of course, there is no salvation apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's the idea of how you view the lost. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 19 through 22, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. That is exactly the attitude of a godly wife. She wants to see her husband won to the Lord, not punished in hell. It should be a godly wife's primary motivation if her husband is lost. She wants her husband to have the same relationship with Jesus Christ that she enjoys. Despite his current unbelief in sin and despite what might be his unfair and unkind treatment of her, her ultimate goal is for him to come to faith. So now let's just kind of step back and apply this at Lakeside, I know there are many women at Lakeside married to unbelieving men. If you're married to an unbeliever, above all else, pray for his salvation. In the weeks that follow, I'm going to teach you about how your conduct should be evangelistic. But it starts with the heart. If you don't even care if your husband is saved, then you've got a heart issue. Don't allow yourself to get hardened and embittered against your husband, even if he's an unbeliever. If you find yourself thinking, well, heaven is too good for him, you've got to ask for forgiveness. Because heaven is too good for all of us. It's all God's mercy. And if you find yourself unable to wish mercy upon a lost sinner, your heart's in a tough place. If your husband doesn't know Christ, your paramount concern should be that he knows Christ. Now, I'll state the obvious, because many more wives, particularly that are hearing my voice right now, have husbands who are saved. I'll state the obvious, even if your husband is not disobedient to the word in the sense that Peter's using, you still should be concerned about your husband's well-being spiritually. Every Godly wife should be praying for their husband, praying for God's favor, 
praying that God will grow them and care for them. But particularly if your husband consistently rejects the Lord. And there are many husbands who are disobedient to the Word in the sense that Peter's talking about who are faithful church attenders. You need to be more concerned about your husband's salvation than you are about justice for yourself. And that's hard for any of us when we're treated unfairly. So let me encourage you. Read and reread and reread and reread the example of Jesus. That's our only hope. And wives, let me encourage you, particularly if you've been hurt badly by your husband, particularly if you've lived for a long time with a man who has no interest in the things of the Lord, if he suddenly shows even a little bit of interest, don't turn into a mocker or someone who's tinged with sarcasm. You never know when you may find yourself working against the Lord. I'm looking forward to continuing with what Peter is saying. Because he gives practical, counterintuitive instruction for how you do this, ladies. But let me encourage you, every wife... Pray for your hard attitude towards your husband. Over the years, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. I've certainly done a lot of marital counseling. And I explain to couples before they're married that if their marital relationship is what God intends, the person on the planet that can hurt them the most is their spouse. Because you're going to be vulnerable. Because you're going to let your guard down as you should. And the pain caused by that kind of hurt by someone that's supposed to be watching out for you can seem beyond belief. That's where we have to remember the grace of God. And at times it's helpful just to step back and say, what did God forgive me of? As I'm embittered and angry against my spouse, what was I forgiven of? And as you think it through, you can find yourself within the parable where you were forgiven an insurmountable debt, but then you're resentful about a little thing. Borrowing the parable of the man who owed an incomprehensible amount of money and the master forgave it, And then he went out and grabbed a fellow servant and choked him for just a little bit. We don't want to be that way, wives. So let me encourage you. This week, be in prayer for your attitude towards your husband. If you have a good attitude towards your husband, praise the Lord for that. And I'd encourage you to pray for protection for your heart. Satan would love to change your attitude of your husband. But if your attitude towards your husband is sinful... Pray that God would change your heart, not that God would change your husband. You want him to be saved, 
But your heart needs to change whether he's saved or not. Let me close our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, this is one of those portions of Scripture where obedience can seem impossible. And yet, Lord, you don't call anyone, including wives, to do things that are not possible. Lord, I pray for the many, many women at Lakeside who are married to unbelieving husbands. I pray that they'll be able to submit anyway and that they'll be able to live lives that are evangelistic and that their husbands would come to faith. And I pray, Lord, for the wives who have been hurt so badly by their husbands that you would soften their hearts. The hurt is real. The offense is real. They are right. What has been done to them is unconscionable. But Lord, help them to put it within the context of their theology so that their ultimate concern is that their sinning husband would be saved. Lord, I pray for all of us who are married that you will help us to live as husband and wife in such a way that brings you glory, not disgrace. Lord, every wife is imperfect, every husband is imperfect. But we pray by your grace that you will enable us to be godly examples in the same way that Christ is our example. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.